Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Desperation, Part 5, Highway 50, Excused Early. Let's start the show. Steve, Cynthia, Mary, and David escape the China pit in the rider truck as Johnny sacrifices himself. Back in desperation, they see dead animals strewn across the town and the extent of tax destruction. Heading out of town, they find Mary's car along Route 50. The group sees an odd cloud in the sky before caravanning towards Austin. While in Mary's car, David finds a note slipped into his pocket with a special message. Sean, we've reached the end of this book, and it's been a pretty epic ending. I would agree. Perhaps even a Bible epic ending. It is very biblical towards the end here. So, Jay, I I was reminded of two other novels when we were finishing up Desperation, and one is obviously The Regulators. There Mm -hmm. is a similar cloud formation in the sky that we get at the end of Desperation and The Regulators. And then also The Hand of God in the Stand, which is another heavily religious book by King that also ends with a shape in the sky that impacts the end of the story. A shape in the sky seemingly influenced by or perhaps disintegrated by God. Yes, right, indeed. Yeah, I certainly saw those overlaps as well. It's really easy to see the overlaps and and the similarities between this and the regulators. In fact, King uses a lot of the same words in his descriptions. In the regulators, it's a cowboy on horseback in the shape of a giant storm cloud that is slowly disintegrating. And here, it's one of the totems, one of the kantas, that is a wolf shape that is slowly fading away. But he uses the word umbilicus in both books. Both animals are facing like east-west, and he talks about the rays of sunshine poking through in the using the same words. And all of the characters in both books see this shape and react pretty strongly to it. Yep. And in both books, Steve Ames says to everybody, calm down. It's just a thing in the sky. And look, it's already falling apart. It's all good, everybody. So King's clearly, as he's writing these, he's deliberately making them overlap. Yeah. One more phrase you missed was grotesquely elongated. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the the grotesquely elongated snout of the horse in Regulators And uh, again, the grotesquely elongated snout of the wolf in Mm -hmm. Desperation. And this reminded me of Bible school when the clouds cleared after the flood and the 40 days of Noah on the scene or on the sea and God opening up the clouds when the dove comes with the leaf that shows that there's land coming and and then the rainbow appearing. And we get something similar with these golden rays of of sunlight coming down. And I'm also reminded of a painting my aunt had where it showed Jesus standing next to the UN and there was this glow of light coming through the clouds shining on Jesus and the UN. It's a very famous picture in a lot of Polish families. You have to you have to believe me on this. I'll, I'll trust you. Yeah. Is Noah on the scene when Noah would do the weather reports on the ark? <laughs> Still 20 more days of rain, folks. <laughs> we got rain and a front coming in with a little bit more rain. 
Doesn't look like it's going to clear up for a while. <laughs> and then the big difference is that we also have a shape in the sky in the stand, and that's the hand of God, right? Yeah. And the big difference here and where King has matured his characters, perhaps, is that the stand is very much a God taking care of things. It's you're a, a legitimate deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. And here we're told over and over again that these characters in desperation have free will and that God has put them into place to make the decisions to do the right thing. And Johnny has done that. He sacrifices himself and then these characters go away. And this last piece is almost like God saying, hey, remember, it's me up here. I helped you with this. You guys did it though. Good job. But I'll just get rid of this scary cloud for you. And good job. Good job by you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a little uh, reward from God. I'll, yeah. I'll just take care of the cloud. Just, I'll just blow it away. Yeah. At the end of the stand, we talked about how the Deus Ex Machina was a problematic choice for King, but we also defended that choice. And we talked about how he led us to that point, that that was what his target was all along, that he was making, he was, he was drawing these characters who were not really operating as much out of free will as the characters in the regulators or or here in desperation but the main difference is that free will like larry underwood is standing on that stage waiting to be executed by flag and he's basically just the bait god is using him as a pawn and larry doesn't have a lot of control over that fact and stew is meant to be yet another member of this group of sacrifices and also bait, but God has plans for Stu beyond this moment. So has Stu break his leg, right? But again, no free will. Stu didn't freely break his leg and stay behind. This was the God in the machine working its own will upon the characters. And I think King did his characters a much greater service here in Desperation. And by giving them free will, they're more interesting. And we don't know exactly what they're going to do. We can guess. These are, these are the, 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 these are the protagonists of the story. They're probably going to do what the quote unquote good guy is going to try <laughs> to do. They're going to try to be heroes. In fact, there's a moment where two characters, David and Johnny, are basically fighting each other on who gets to be that sacrifice, who gets to be the hero. Yep. But the god of this story always wanted it to be Johnny Maraville and maybe kept him alive his whole life just so that he could be here for this moment. Yep but still relying on him to do the right thing at the right time and not forcing him to do so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And just so that you don't think that we're making this up about this biblical ending to this story, King sort of, as he tends to do, points it out clearly in this last quote, the hide of the sky wolf was tearing open in some places, appearing to melt in others, letting the sun shine through in long golden rays. They are both beautiful and somehow comical. The sort of shot you expected to see at the end of a Bible epic. <laughs> Thanks for making that clear for us, King. Yeah, we appreciate yeah, it. You know, it's like when the Red Seas, like you know, came back together and Charlton Heston <laughs> kept on riding. It's like, look what I did here, guys! It's just mm-hmm. like a Bible epic. Look, it's sardines and bread. It's fish and loaves. But I mean, this is all part of this nice ending where we were told in the last section. I think it was subtitled "God is Cruel." Yeah. And here we're told by the end that that God is love as well. Mm-hmm. Which is a much more familiar 
associated word with God <laughs> than cruelty. Yeah. But and I think it's, it's Mary who points that out to yeah to David, right? God is love, right? You get that now, don't you, David? And David's like, well, yeah, God is love, but also cruel and also everything. That's what really stood out for me was the also everything. And it gave me the key to understanding King's message and the journey that these characters have been on, that God is cruel, but he is also love. And the reason why he can be both things at the same time is because God is everything. Mm -hmm. And if you're everything, you're everything. It's like infinity. If you have an infinite number of things, it doesn't matter if there's variation. You still have an infinite number of the same things, an infinite number of things that are different. And that's where things can start to like kind of break your brain if you think too hard about uh, certain aspects of things. But if God is everything, he can be both cruel and love. And he certainly is both. And I don't know if they're in equal measure in this story. <laughs> there's a lot more cruelty than, than love on the page. Uh, but it's also an example of how there's really just no way that humans can fully comprehend God or God's agenda, which I think is what the characters in the story, especially David, are constantly struggling with. Yep. Like, why? Why have you done all of these things just so that the handful of us can be here at the right time to blow up this mine and then make a quick getaway to Texas? Yep. There's no way they can comprehend what he's doing, he being God. And while it's not some like God on the chessboard moving pieces around, like not physically putting Johnny in the China pit, not physically moving the rider truck over so it could escape the destruction, but he's put them in place to make those decisions. And the characters can never truly understand that. And I don't think that in King's view, at least, he wants them to. Like that's sort of the point. You just got to live your life and do your own thing and do it based on what you think is right or good and hope it all works out. And you can ascribe that to God being love, or you can ascribe that to God being cruel or whatever, but you're just never going to be able to understand it. Yeah. Your chessboard analogy that reminds me of a movie. I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the show before, Clash of the Titans. <laughs> ah, you have to fill me in Clash of the Titans. Okay. There's this wonderful scene when Sir Lawrence Olivier, who's playing Zeus, they had some really great actors in that movie. <laughs> um, Perseus, as a child, and his mother have been shipwrecked and they're floating at sea, and the other gods expect him to die, expect him to, to perish at sea. And Zeus is like, yeah, but that's my kid. So Olivier picks up this like clay figurine of the two, and they are in the position of the characters at sea in a boat, and he sets them down on an island. And now they are in the position of mother and child standing on the shore. And then the scene fades to the live action of Harry the Hamlin two characters on the show. Harry Hamlin. Yeah. Well, the boy grows into Harry Hamlin on this island. And it's this wonderful thing where Zeus just physically takes that game piece and moves it. Yep. And through the magic of the, the way the movie works is that as his hand is moving to the new place, that clay figurine is changing its shape. It's changing both, you know, from a person sitting in a boat to a person standing on the beach. And that's exactly what we see when the scene changes. Yep. I love it. It's a great movie. <laughs> Clash of the Titans. Highly recommend. Five stars by Jay. Very good. And, and we get this note that sort of ties everything up in a bow, right? This is the hall pass that David left back in the Ho Chi Minh trail treehouse that he and his buddy had made. And mm -hmm. somehow it has now transported itself into... David's pocket and Johnny's note has 
two things on it, but it says, stay at the head of the mummy, first book of John, chapter four, verse eight. And he says, remember. And that really sort of summarizes both things, right? There's this remember the God piece of it, mm-hmm. right? This this important phrase from the Bible. But on the other hand, stay ahead of the mummy. You got to take care of yourself at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. You can't rely on God. You also have to stay ahead of the bad guys. And that this specific verse is the God is love yep. verse. Like, remember that even though you have been through this incredible amount of suffering, you, you might have forgotten this, but God is love. Don't forget to take that with you too. carry that with you too. Yep. So we talked about all this and I think you and I may be not super comfortable talking about the God stuff on a regular basis, but I also thought of this from a different perspective as well, Jay, and that is that you could make a case that in the terms of the book Desperation, Stephen King is really the God of the entire world that is Desperation. He is love because he cares about the characters that survive. Mm-hmm. He's cruel because he's culled so many of the other ones throughout the novel to get to this final point. And he's everything because he created the entire fictional world. Yeah. And so this this whole book is really the creation of God. And just to further tack on to this, we talked a couple episodes ago about how we were reminded of the Twilight Zone episode five characters in search of an exit, Mm -hmm. which was about these fictional characters who thought that they were alive and couldn't figure out how to get out of this place that they were in. And it turns out that they were toys and they really had no comprehension of it, right? Like they're like, I'm a soldier. I dressed up like a soldier. So I'm a soldier. If you remember, these characters were both in regulators and desperation. And so to some extent, they are just these pieces that, that King has created but King has also said in the past that he doesn't plot out his books. Like he doesn't outline them and know where everything's going. In fact, he has said before, like he writes the book and lets it go where it takes him and that the characters themselves help make the decision of where it's going. And so when you think about it like that, those characters have free will within his book. He yeah. might have created Johnny Marinville, but he doesn't know what's going to happen until Johnny Marinville does it and then King writes it down. So um if maybe you're not the most religious person and you want to figure out another way of dealing with this, just think of God as Stephen King. Right. Which is just kind of another way of saying that this is all a Dark Tower book without ever mentioning the Dark Tower, that mm. God is the tower or God is mature in the turtle speaking through these characters. And they are putting their lens of understanding on these signals, these communications, these directions of free will. They're coming from something like the turtle. And that's what's leading them to this moment. And the turtle cares because the turtle doesn't want this creature Tack, who is from Todash space, to get into the world. And even if it takes killing, you know, 10,000 citizens of Desperation Nevada to get all of the things to happen so that he can close that gap, that rift, that thinny, then so be it. And I've said similar, or I've made that same point before. In previous episodes, for myself, grasping at an alternate interpretation that isn't just the Christian God. Mm-hmm. But I think that King is, without really hiding it in any way or trying to leave it open for further interpretation, this is supposed to be the Christian God. And it is operating in the way that that God is typically portrayed that it's the God of free will, but it doesn't force people to do anything. Right. Right. All in all, I thought it was a satisfactory ending for this book. I know it was only 
25 pages and really is an epilogue. It ties it up nicely and really sort of carries through the themes of the book. I think King stuck the landing on this one. Agreed. We'll talk a little bit more about our overall feelings in the book a little later in the episode. Yeah, but first we want to thank our patrons. Thank you for supporting the show. Our patrons get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. In the bonus episode that comes out around the same time as you're hearing this, you can hear us talk about the Desperation TV movie, starring Tom Skerritt, Annabeth Gish, and Ron Perlman, and TV Steven Weber. Oh, you almost got me with that Ron Perlman. (laughs) Snuck him right in there. Yeah. And it's hard to sneak Ron Perlman into anywhere. He's He's a big dude. He is a big dude. And my understanding (laughs) is is that he gets bigger and bigger throughout the movie. Spoilers. (laughs) A spoiler, so. Maybe he plays David. You never know. Yes, that would make sense. Anyhow, remember to support our show. Become a patron at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Sean, is it time to talk about some fun stuff? Yeah, I will say that this was a very short section and it was a little bit of a downer, right? Like they're scared by the clouds. They have to have this sort of harrowing escape in the rider truck from the China pit as it falls apart. And David gets this sad note from Johnny. I mean, is there going to be any fun stuff though? I found a couple of things. All right. Why don't you go first? A couple of things that buoyed my spirits. (laughs) One of those was that mention of the rider truck. Our gang of heroes is piled into the truck and they are driving as fast as they possibly can to escape the pit as it is crumbling and collapsing beneath them. And over and over again, Steve Ames is just trying to get it to go faster and faster and faster. And he's just like, pushes the gas pedal down all the way. And then somehow it's like pushing it down all the way again. And he's just (laughs) doing this. And he's like yelling at it, like, run, you bitch. And he's pounding on the wheel and he says, run for me now. And the rider truck surges over the rim of the pit like a clumsy yellow-nosed dinosaur. And I'm just like, this is utter nonsense. (laughs) As somebody who has driven a rental moving van like this rider truck, and as anybody listening now who has ever had the opportunity, if not privilege, (laughs) of driving a rider truck, they are not speed demons. If I had to pick any vehicle out there to escape a collapsing mine, sorry, pit. This would be the last thing. I'm pretty sure, like I was really in suspense whether they would survive this because I didn't think it was going to make it. I thought that the, the, the van was just going to be like, sorry, dude, I just got no more for you. This is it. <laughs> this is it. We're going back in. But that's just me having a little bit of fun with the idea that these vans are usually terribly underpowered and not exactly an off-road vehicle. I, I wonder if Ryder paid like more than U-Haul to get mentioned throughout the novel like this, like product placement from King or what? Yeah. Great rider commercial, like <laughs> yeah. the we... pit collapsing and the, the van just <laughs> boom, boom, <laughs> over the top of the, the ridge <laughs> packed with five people. And they're all like, yeah. <laughs> Somehow I don't think they're going to get their deposit back for that. No, truck. I don't think so. Uh so the buildup in the second half of this section is to this note that David finds in his pocket that looks like it has been written by Johnny Marinville. At least that's what David figures out. He's like, I, I bet if I showed this to Steve, Steve could tell me that that's Johnny's handwriting. Well, let me tell you, I could barely read this note, Jay. I, <laughs> I got to the end and maybe it was a combination of reading it on my Kindle or just the chicken scratch or the way it's pixelated. 
but I had to read it hard to figure out what it said. I had no idea. Stay ahead of the mummy. It also didn't help that it had been quite a while since we had talked about the notes. It was referring to things that happened in the first part of the book, which we had read a couple months ago at this point. So anyhow, I could barely read Johnny's handwriting and that's my fun stuff. So I knew that this note was coming and I had no exact memory of what the note said, but I'd set myself up for this incredibly emotional reveal. Like I was going to get to that part of the page and see the note and just have to stop reading for a moment. Just like put the book down and and have a cry or something like this was going to be, this was going to really hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was even covering that part of the page so that I couldn't accidentally see it as I was making my way. And when I finally got to that line, I moved my hand away and I read, stay ahead of the mummy. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I, I get it. I get where he's going for, but it just wasn't that much of an impact. It was a little bit of a letdown. Eh. And then I was actually distracted by what was a Bible verse, but because of the chicken scratch, it was like, I thought the one John was I, John, (laughs) and it was a note from Johnny Marinville. Yeah. So I'm like, is this I, John, four divided by eight, remember? Like... (laughs) Four divided by eight equals half. And is it just like a confession? Like, I, John, half remember? <laughs> and so I'm like trying to figure out, this is like like a puzzle. Like, what what is the secret to the riddle? And, uh, you know, I, and I'm like, oh, it's a Bible verse. I just needed to read a couple paragraphs and that explains it all yes. for me. I don't even have to get out a Bible and look it up. You heathen you. <laughs> Didn't even recognize it as a Bible verse. <laughs> Reduce that fraction. Yeah, I'm I'm much more of a mathematician than a religious scholar. Oh, or well, maybe I've just seen too many episodes of Batman where the Riddler is the main antagonist. I got to figure out this Rebus. <laughs> All right. Well, you may not have thought much of that line in the book, and it might not have had that emotional gut punch that you're hoping for, but. Both you and I noted another line that really is sort of the emotional gut punch of this section, I think. Yeah. And probably doesn't belong in fun stuff because this isn't a very fun line. It's very well written, but it's not fun. Why don't you read it for us, Jay? Sure. And this has to do with David's sorrow. And it's the first moment he has to collect himself when he gets into Mary's car and he thinks about that there were holes in him that cried out in pain and would go on crying out for so much of the future. One for his mother one for his father, one for his sister. Holes like faces, holes like eyes. And the holes like eyes like ties it back nicely to tack, which is as it just makes this scary. Yeah. But even if you just left that last sentence off, this is a young boy who is really, really going to struggle because of what has happened to him. He didn't just have this harrowing experience. He also lost his whole family in the process. Mm-hmm. Everybody else that's in the story, except, I mean, Mary lost her husband. That's a pretty big impact, but not the same thing that I think David experienced. But like Steve Ames and Cynthia, they it seems like they're they're hitting it off as a couple. Maybe they'll stick together. And this could be a positive thing in their lives. But David is in for a lifetime of sorrow, right? Yeah. So how's that for fun stuff? <laughs> All right, well, let's get into our final thoughts on Desperation, as we like to do with some reviews of the book. Goodreads gave this a 3.84 stars out of five, and Regulators got a 3.7 for comparison, so slightly better. And on Library Thing, it's a 3.59, and Regulators is a 3.38. So uh, 
okay scores. Now, Fantasy Book Review, which we normally don't call out, gave it an 8.8 out of 10, which is a pretty high rating for this book. And in my mind, Jay, you know, I, I mentioned going into this book that I didn't have a good sense of what this book was about or whether it was well-reviewed. And I just sort of assumed that it was a, a lesser king and you don't hear it talked about. And when I got to the reviews, I was surprised at how many positive reviews this got. Um, book list, which notes that this was the third book of Kings in this year, is as pell-mell an action thriller as any has written in one of his sweetest performances. It is God, the God of the Christian Bible, both Testaments, who eventually saves Johnny David and the rest of those who survive desperation, but saves them only by means of their own free will and their own heroic and gory exertions. If King wants to show how to inject religion honestly and effectively into the normally crass horror genre, he succeeds beautifully, which is a very strong review. Yeah. And I especially appreciated that final sentence about injecting religion honestly and effectively, because I think that speaks directly to the point that you've made repeatedly throughout our coverage of this book. And that is that um, King is doing a lot of the same things he did in The Stand with his exploration of religion and connecting religion to the characters, connecting God to the story, making God a character even mm -hmm. in the story, but he's doing it so much more effectively here than he ever did in The Stand. The Stand is a superior book, but on that particular point, the God point, The Stand struggles. King is not as successful handling the God part of the book, but he is very successful here. Yep. Agreed. Uh, Publishers Weekly gets a little bit into that as well, saying that King proves himself the premier literary barometer of our cultural climb. If The Regulators is a work of secular horror, this is a novel of sacred horror. The terror is relentless. This is King's scariest book since Misery. And as the savageries inflicted upon David and others multiply, they must discern what is God's will and how can God's will be done when it seems so cruel. Near the story's end, the writer muses that horror isn't the sort of stuff which serious literature has made. King knows better and so will anyone who reads this deeply moving and enthralling masterpiece of the genre. A masterpiece mm. even. Wow. wow. Yes. And then uh, finally, Kirkus starred review of Desperation says, mystifying if read after the regulators, it is fabulous storytelling that avoids the slovenly glee that corrodes the grand fantasy of its mirror novel. The twin rulers of the dual novels are God the Cruel, Desperation, who speaks only to David Carver, and the great God Television, the regulators, a rotten God made visible through Seth. Knockout classic horror, King's most carefully crafted, well-groomed pages ever. Whoa. So, wow. yeah, I'm sort of surprised at how highly reviewed are, not because I don't think that it's a well-written book and not any of these things. I, I, I agree with that, but more just that I just don't hear anybody talk about this book at all. Mm -hmm. And it's been out for 20 some years now. So, but what did you think, Jay? Or before I answer that question, I just want to say like, yeah, I also never hear very many people talking about this. If you get into a conversation with, uh, what, what's your favorite Stephen King book? No one ever mentions this book. They don't even say, oh, well, this is my third favorite or my 10th <laughs> favorite. It's, it's not on anybody's radar. Yeah. And maybe that's because a lot of people haven't read it. Um, maybe it's actually weighted down or obscured or sullied by the regulators. Mm. The regulators isn't a good book. And he wrote and published them simultaneously, and they are directly linked deliberately. And because of that, their quality gets averaged mm. in people's minds because it's like, I'm going to just think of this as one story and one book and one set of characters. And therefore, if I rate one as a 
a one and another one has a five. Well, guess where I my average ends up. Yep. Um, all that is to say, I would rate this book as a 3.5 out of five. And I would rate the regulators as like a 2.75. Maybe, yeah. And even that's generous for the regulators. But I, I kind of feel like this was a really good book. This was great work by King. Great, fun book to read in general. But I have to tamp down my, my overall score a little bit because I need to leave room higher up on the scale for the books that King has written that I like quite a lot more. Mm, I can see that. I'll say two things to add on as to why this book may be forgotten. One, I don't think it could be easily summarized like a lot of other classic King. So mm. flu wipes out humanity, two groups fight for survival, uh, possessed dog terrorizes child, vampires come to a small town. Car gets rabies. <laughs> Car gets rabies. Uh, <laughs> romance novel gets captured by a number one fan. Um, I think this one is would be a little bit harder to just sort of nail down with a, a single sentence log line. Two, I really don't think that cover does it any favors. Hmm. It's it's not a engaging cover. It is memorable, but it's sort of ugly, and I don't think it does a good job of representing the book. So those are two thoughts on my end on this. Having said all that, this I think is a gem of King's. I'm so glad we picked it up and read it because again, it's not one that I would have ever sought out necessarily unless I was going to say like, I've got to read every King. I just sort of like assumed that this is one that I didn't need to pick up. And yet I did. So I gave it four stars. So I'm definitely higher on it than you are. And I might be lower on regulators than you are. I might be a two and a half on regulators. I'm really glad we picked it up. And I know at least one of our patrons said that this was their first book that they read by King and one of their favorites. So there at least is somebody out there who loves this book. And hopefully uh, yeah. hopefully you yeah. like the same things that we did and you're happy we did it. Jay, we're done with Desperation. Why don't we talk about some other things that we have been checking out lately? You want to start us off? Sure. There is a movie out by David Lowry that just went on to DVD and streaming called The Green Knight. And it is an adaptation of the epic poem and story, uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. And it is a pretty good movie. It is not your typical fantasy movie in that it's very surreal and very unsettling in a lot of interesting ways. And yet the theme is all about honor and what it means to be a knight. And it's really cool and well done. It might be slow for some people, like you're not going to get this Lord of the Rings giant action sequences. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's not a whole lot of big action sequences that you would think, but there's a lot of thought given to this movie. It's well shot. And this feeling I got throughout it, like this is just sort of disturbing me in some ways. Interestingly enough, what it made me think of is um, the scene in Empire Strikes Back when Luke is on Dagobah and enters into the tree and faces off against Darth Vader, you know, and there's that slow motion mm -hmm. scene. That's based on a, a short film that the, I think like one of the assistant directors, George Lucas gave him some money and said, hey, go, go make a movie. And he went out to the, like the swamps of Scotland and made this really weird medieval thing. And it, it used a lot of those slow motion sword fighting that you see in that scene. But it's got that same sort of feel to it. Like, hmm. this isn't quite normal. There's something not quite right about it. And it's not just the magic and it's not just the medievalness, but it's just the way it's all coming together. So definitely worth checking out. I am very much looking forward to seeing that movie. I'm a big fan of the poem. 
I guess the, the source material. And <laughs> it makes sense that it's kind of trippy. I think that's a great way to interpret this because it's it's a story about how a knight sort of has to use his wiles and there's a lot of magic and trickery involved. And you can try to cram in sword fights and action scenes into that, but that's not what it's about. It's about, like you said, honor and it's about solving riddles and and I've heard a lot of amazing things about this movie. Well, I can't endorse it with you because I haven't seen it, but I definitely understand why you would and I want to see it myself. For me, my other worlds than these endorsement is the new I feel so lame talking about a Marvel show after you just talked about <laughs> this wonderful movie about an epic poem. Um is the new Hawkeye series. I watched the first two episodes that were released this week and I dig it. It's pretty lighthearted. It's mostly on the comic side. Jeremy Renner is great in it. He's almost always great no matter what, but his portrayal of Hawkeye in the MCU is always good. At this point, he's playing this grizzled war veteran of all of the Marvel movies and TV things that we've seen up in this point. And he's kind of the last Avenger left. He's like the last marble rattling around in an empty box. <laughs> and he portrays that very effectively. Anyway, check it out. It's available on Disney Plus, of course. Of course, by the time you hear this, you'll be able to watch all six episodes and probably start watching Boba Fett. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My other world's in these is now Boba Fett. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, the one thing I really like about this Hawkeye portrayal is that the show itself is making fun of the fact that Hawkeye's sort of a lame Avenger. Like he's not oh, as yeah. he's not as well known as the other Avengers and not as cool. And I like that they're sort of mocking that throughout, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And that's all I got. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we start a new book. Chris, is this true? Christine? We're reading Christine, Jay? <laughs> you sound like you just read that information for the first time. Wow. Wow. So join us next episode as we cover Christine, the prologue in chapters 1 through 11. Well, that should be pretty fun. I think it will. All right. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Special message. Those are two words that are very hard to say right next to each other. While in Mary's car, David finds a note slipped into his pocket with a special message. Special message. I know, I sound drunk. I haven't had anything to drink tonight. Special message, yes. Sure you haven't had anything to drink. He comes after you with a knife, you go after him with a gun. That's Capone's way. That's the Chicago way. Look at you showing up with your soft clothes. Stomp your feet. Here endeth the lesson. <laughs> <laughs>